In this episode of the Afghan Eye podcast, we are hosting Amina Khan. Amina Khan served as a senior research fellow at the Institute for Strategic Studies in Islamabad, focusing on Afghanistan. She is the current director of Center for Middle East and Africa at that institute. Amina Khan is also writing her doctoral thesis on the Afghan Taliban at the Qaed Azam University in Islamabad. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Afghan Eye podcast. I'm your host Sangar Paikar and I'm joined by my co-host Ahmad Walid Kakar. And today in this episode we have an esteemed guest from our neighboring country, uh, Ms. Amina Khan. She's the director of Center for Middle East, Africa and Afghanistan at Institute for Strategic Studies in Islamabad, Pakistan. Ms. Amina Khan, uh, welcome to the Afghan Eye podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, sure. So, uh, um, um, I just want to sort of get to get to know you better. So, uh, you know, the Institute for Strategic Studies in uh, Islamabad, what kind of, with regard to Afghanistan in particular, especially yourself, what kind of work would you say that you do? What areas do you look at? Uh, so basically all areas vis-a-vis uh, Afghanistan and particularly those that are of concern to Pakistan. So naturally that encompasses everything that happens in Afghanistan because we're such close neighbors. Um, so basically um, at the Institute, let me just tell you a little about it, it was established in 1973 and it's uh, meant to provide policy inputs to the government on our relationship vis-a-vis Afghanistan. So we've done a lot of work on, you know, the recent measures trying to uh, make up for the losses, particularly our policy towards the Afghan refugees, which hasn't been something that I can, you know, be proud of. But, you know, we've been doing things like that, border management. We provide policy inputs to the Foreign Office and to other ministries. And the aim is to kind of reduce the gap uh, in communication and mistrust that continues to unfortunately exist between these two neighbors. So that's basically in a nutshell what we do. And apart from that, we, apart from providing policy briefs to um, national institutions, we have a journal. We publish extensively. I've written extensively on Afghanistan. Uh, uh, and that, that's about it. Yeah. yeah, sure. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned the reports and journals because I've got a, I read a couple of your articles. Okay. Uh, yeah. So no, I just wanted to ask, so ask them about, ask you about them, sort of casually later on. But how sure. and why would you say you became interested in Afghanistan specifically? Well, um, okay. When I, it's an interesting story. In fact, uh, when I joined the institute, I was meant to work on Central Asia. Okay. This was straight after I graduated. And then my, my boss, who's currently in the PTI government, Dr. Shirin Mazari. Um, okay. I, I don't know whether you've heard of her, but she's... Uh, yes, of course. Right, okay. Mazari. So, Mazari, exactly. So so she told me, I'm a Pashtun, I'm from the Mumund Agency. So, so she took that into account and she said, work on Afghanistan. And I'll be honest here, and I'm ashamed at that time, I was like, well, why would I want to work on Afghanistan? You know, you know there's violence and there's nothing. But honestly... Since I started working on Afghanistan, I've, you know, just, just, just not stopped. And uh, I just find it so interesting. It's fascinating. It's tragic at the same time. And plus, there are so many commonalities. I grew up with Afghans in Peshawar. Then in England, I had Afghans as friends. So I think it's just been, you know, just something that's come naturally. Uh, and unfortunately, because the country has been engulfed in such turmoil, uh, I think it's just captured my attention. In fact, I'm doing my PhD uh, on the Afghan Taliban. 
uh, I did my master's thesis at Royal Holloway on the Taliban, and and so my thesis, my PhD, hopefully if I get it done, is on that too. So I think probably that's the reason why I've been so interested. And are you planning on doing the PhD in the UK or in Pakistan? Uh, no, no, no. I, I'm I actually I'm so I've nearly done it. I'm in the writing phase, and oh, if okay. any who are in it, it's, I'm just stuck. I've got kids, and I've got work. And now we have COVID, so I'm just trying to pen everything down. And, and the Taliban just keep on changing, you know, consistently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's not yeah. making my life any easier. Yeah, yeah, sure. So how long ago did you uh, start working at the institute? How long, how long has it been? I, I started in 2005. Mm-hmm. And then in between, I took a year out to do a second master's when, you know, I went to Royal Holloway. And then after that, uh, yeah, I've been here ever since. Sure. Okay. Sure. So, I wanna I wanna dive sort of right into it. So, for example, with regard to Afghanistan and Pakistan, so we know that there's been a peace deal signed between the U.S. and the Taliban, which on the ground hasn't really meant much. Now, what does this mean for Pakistan specifically? Okay. Well, I think you know everybody was very optimistic when the agreement was signed. I won't call it a peace agreement because it's not in any way. Uh, achieved peace at all. It is just an agreement that was signed between the Americans uh, and the Taliban. And I think here in Pakistan, um, well, we have two quarters. Certain quarters within our policymakers uh, do feel that since the agreement has been signed, it's a win-win situation, the Americans are going to leave and everything is going to be hunky-dory. But this is a very, you know, minute uh, or, or a small community that believes in this way. The others, including me, feel, you know, that the agreement um, hasn't delivered, particularly on, on the major aspects. And I'll start with the ceasefire, I think, or the reduction in violence, which is so pivotal for the peace process. And, uh, you know, while I, I do understand certain points from the Taliban side, the fact that they continue to target and kill innocent Afghans uh, is a breach of the agreement. Uh, the fact that they signed the agreement, which entails that they will not kill American troops, is not good enough. You know, if you can sign an agreement or with the country that, you know, overthrew you from power and you can accept them as an equal stakeholder, why can you not accept the Afghan government? So I think here it is important that if the intra-Afghan talks do take place in the future, it is the Americans' responsibility to ensure a reduction in violence that leads to a ceasefire. This is paramount, and I think this is something that Pakistan has also been pushing for. Um, maybe they could do it in a better way, and they could be more, uh, I think, forceful about it. Unfortunately, Islamabad hasn't, but I think this is something that really, really needs to be focused on. Um, and secondly, I think, what is the future aspects? Of what will Afghanistan look like? after the intra-Afghan talks. There is no question, let alone discussion, on what kind of a future political setup there will be. And I think these are critical aspects that were overlooked in the agreement. And these need to be focused on. Uh, and I think also, while a lot of people, you know, you know, are speaking about the reduction of troops and, and, you know, American forces, I think it has to be a very responsible and a sustained withdrawal. Because I think, you know, Pakistan, for one, will really, really feel the repercussions if the Americans leave in a haphazard manner. And I think we've seen this in the past. So if we're talking about Pakistan's attitude towards war in Afghanistan and the Taliban in particular, I think it's useful that we draw a parallel between the 1990s okay, mm-hmm. and the present day. So mm-hmm. 
a lot of the time when people discuss uh, Pakistan's policy towards Afghanistan, the term that's used is strategic mm. depth. And, yeah. you, you know, strategic depth, for those that don't know, is the idea that Pakistan is on a perpetual war footing with India, and therefore it wants a friendly government in Afghanistan, which it could fall back on in the case of war with India. It doesn't want to fight a war on two fronts. It wants to actually have Afghanistan support it. Uh, and to that extent, the, Pakistan has supported people like uh, specifically Gulbuddin Hikmatyar, Hezbe Islami, and later on the Taliban in the mid to late 90s. Is that still relevant today? Look, the fact remains, particularly if you look at the current state of affairs between India and Pakistan, our entire Afghan policy, unfortunately, has been based on our relationship with India. And I think that's a great mistake that we've made in the past, and hence even our recognition of the Taliban. And I often question, what did we gain from uh, recognizing or supporting the Taliban? Yes, we limited India's role in Afghanistan for a a couple of years, but look at the amount of inroads and investment and development India has done during the past now 18, maybe 19 years. So I think that was a that was a mistake that was made on our part. And you know, strategic depth, I won't deny, was a concept, but I think there is and there has been a realization in Pakistan post 2012 that India does have a presence in Afghanistan, and Pakistan cannot base its relationship with Afghanistan on the basis of India. So what happened in 2012 to, to, that led to you know, this change in thinking? I think, well, uh, uh, particularly the leadership when, you know, with the change of government as well. And I think a growing realization particularly, and I think this will be maybe a little difficult for, for our viewers and maybe for the both of you to realize, but within our military leadership who has always dictated our policy in a, uh, towards Afghanistan. Um, a lot of the issues, a lot of the developments that have taken place, and again, post-2014 as well, when President Hani came, do remember, who did he visit first? He went straight to the GHQ. Yes. So a lot of the, the, the policies that have changed within Pakistan is because there is a change within the military mindset towards Afghanistan. And I think they do realize that, you know, you can't have one policy for your neighbor and then want something else for yourself. And I think the repercussions we face, particularly in Fata, has been somewhat of a wake-up call. And I'm not saying that there's a complete change because our policy still towards Afghanistan is vague and contradictory at times. But I think that in the beginning, we really didn't have a policy towards Afghanistan. It was, you know, a very temporary policy day-to-day. For example, with the refugees, we would always use this as a card or, or, you know, something that we would use to put pressure on Kabul. And I think when that backfired, we realized that we need to, you know, internally have a look at our policies and we need to view Afghanistan as an equal stakeholder. And I think that's the change that has taken place. You know, have you have you by chance read um, Directorate S by Steve Cole? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because uh, in Director S, it's interesting because um, it's it, Ashraf Khayani is quoted or, let's say, is alleged to have offered Karzai, uh, Nadim Taj and Ashraf Khayani, like, you know, we'll cut the support of the Taliban if you do this, that, this, that. Yeah. Yes. And this and that was obviously if you limit India's influence in Afghanistan. Yeah. But, um, sure, I mean, but... With, so if there has been this change 
in mm. amongst mm. the top tier of Pakistan's military leadership uh, mm. to, in their attitude towards Afghanistan and the Taliban specifically. Does this mean that, you know, uh, contrary to the popular perception, the Pakistani military does not dictate Taliban policy on the ground? I do not think they dictate the policy, but they certainly have an influence. But I think... Okay. What kind of... To what extent does that influence uh, sort of shape Taliban policymaking, can we say? You know, that is a question that I think you'll have to ask the Taliban to be very honest with you. <laughs> I mean, they would, they would deny yeah. it. The thing is, that's, they would totally <laughs> deny it. So No, no, I, I don't think they deny it after the way they were hugging our foreign minister. You know, I think it was last year when they came to Pakistan. So I don't think either side can deny it. But I think the fact is that, you know, pushing them towards, for example, even a ceasefire. I think now China is also in the equation. So, for example, if Pakistan was playing a negative role in the past to secure its interests, it's not going to do that anymore because you've got China now in the equation as well. And also because, you see, the Taliban, they've grown as a group. And I think they do realize that, you know, Pakistan, for whatever reasons, had played somewhat of a double game when it had to change its sides when the whole, you know, Afghan thing started with, with 9-11. And there are many uh, Taliban that openly um, criticized Pakistan for the way, you know, we changed towards them. And I think if you've read Mullah Zaif's book, and he's on yes. record saying this, so, you know, he's not just one particular Talib. There are so many others. But, you know, so the, the Taliban, they do, I think Pakistan has an influence. Uh, I'm not... And in a position of authority to say how much the influence is there, but for sure they do have an influence. But I don't think they dictate. A, I don't think the Taliban listen to anyone. So, so for example, so I mean, you wrote. Uh, you, so I've read your articles from February the fourth, twenty twenty. I think it was <laughs> March the thirteenth and okay. June the seventeenth. I think I got the dates right. Okay, but in okay. March the seventeenth. You said that um, for its part, Pakistan has mm. supported the peace process of Afghanistan, but warned of spoilers that could derail mm. any such process. And I think you were referring to Shah Mahmoud Qureshi. Okay, so I mean, the perception in Afghanistan would be that, mm. amongst many quarters in Afghanistan, this is mm. obviously a uniform view that Pakistan is only supporting the peace process yeah. Yeah. because their guys won, because okay. because the Taliban won. Uh, and that it hasn't actually supported the peace process because, for example, you mentioned the double game, sort of imprisoning yeah. Mullah Bradar, uh, yeah. you know, uh, collaborating and uh, exterminating uh, Mullah Akhtar Mansur. So yeah. the, the perception would be that, you know, mm. the, the military leadership hasn't actually changed and mm. that it's mm. still very much running things on the ground, playing a double game where it benefits. So, right. with regard to the with with regard to the military leadership, uh, in your article in June 2017, you mentioned the appointment of um, uh, Muhammad Sadiq as special yeah. uh, representative to Kabul, mm. and it was followed by um, General Bajwa visiting Kabul as well. Now, right. given the really bad rep that uh, Pakistani military, rightly or wrongly, has in Afghanistan. What mm. does it tell us that Bajwa was the one to visit Kabul and not a civilian mm. representative? Mm. Mm. Okay, just one thing. You know, uh, the Afghan Taliban, mm -hmm. like so many others, have never accepted the dual landline. This is one thing as well. So if we were looking towards how have we benefited, and I often, you know, question 
how have we benefited from supporting the Afghan Taliban? Yes, as I mentioned earlier, they limited India's presence while they were in power. But if you see now, their policies have changed towards India and they're more pragmatic and they had given a statement before as well saying that we're not out to, you know, harm any civilians within our country. And that was a direct reference, I think, to the Indians. I think Sohail Shaheen gave that. Apart from that, they haven't recognized and they will not recognize the Durant line. So, you know, this, I understand the, the perceptions people have within Afghanistan that, you know, Pakistan, you know, will somehow become, I don't know, extremely powerful or secure by having the, the Taliban in power. I, I think that's, that's, that's overstretched because I don't see the benefit there. So Having do you said, see do you see yeah. the official recognition of the Durand line to be a mm. uh, you know a national interest of Pakistan that should be given priority because honestly speaking mm. honestly speaking mm. I don't think the I think it's just used as a red herring mm. Uh, mm. you know to justify X Y Z but in the rea- in reality uh, it doesn't actually mean much w- uh, would you say would you say that you know the recognition of the Durand line is something that the mm. political circles in Pakistan place a lot of emphasis on? Uh, they, they always have, by the way. Look, uh, in the beginning they didn't because the open border suited them. Okay, mm-hmm. and, and for obvious reasons, and I won't get into history. But I think, again, once we had the attack in Peshawar on the APS, you know, the school attack that, that you know, where mm-hmm. children were killed, and particularly after we had our nation, national action plan, I think then it became an issue. Uh, and I think since then... Uh, Pakistan has been very serious when it comes to its side of the border. And look, let's be honest, initially Pakistan used to do it and now the Afghans do it. You know, for far too long, you know, the border has been outsourced to militants on both sides. Initially, we would do it, which was a kosher. That was fine then when we were doing it. But when the Afghans started doing it, then we realized that, okay, here's the border and we need to recognize it. And uh, and I completely understand. It will be political suicide for any Afghan leader to accept the Durand line. It is just not possible. But I think there can be ways in, we, in ways it can be managed because the whole uh, the point of the border should be to facilitate movement. Since Ambassador Sadiq uh, has been appointed, you know, as a special rep for Pakistan and Afghanistan, a lot of developments have taken place, positive developments uh, regarding the border. But just let me mention regarding Ambassador Sadiq's appointment, I was saying that it's ironic that, you know, Pakistan and Afghanistan are so close in so many ways, yet they're so divided. And it's taken more than, I think, what, 18, 19 years for Pakistan to realize that we need to have a special representative for, you know, having... Yeah, that's, that, that's what every, I wanted to ask. That's every what I other country, to... like every other country in the world, all the major stakeholders, and even those that have a very minimum role in Afghanistan have a special rep for, you know, Pak Afghan or Afghanistan. And we haven't had it. And, it, and it's just ironic. Uh, but the fact that he's been appointed, I think, is, is a very important development. He's a Pashtun. He served there. And um, even if he was not a Pashtun, but it just helps him being a Pashtun because, you know, he can reach out to the larger public. And I think since his appointment, a lot of positive developments have taken place. And one is, you know, the invitation to Abdullah Abdullah. And that's important because Abdullah Abdullah did not come to Pakistan while he was the chief executive. So if he comes, I think it will be uh, at least, you know, symbolically, it will mean a lot if, if he comes. And apart from that, you know, we've had major issues with, you know, trading across the border. And I have to say, those are issues that have come from Pakistan's side. We have a number of bureaucratic struggles to overcome. 
And the fact that now the border is open, you know, six days a week, one day is for pedestrians, then you have two other border posts that have been opened. A border market is going to be established, you know, between both where they can trade, the, the locals can trade easily because they really suffered as a result of the closure of the border. So I think these positive developments have taken place. And believe me, the military is on board because if the military was not on board, you would not be able to see such drastic developments take place so quickly. Yes. I mean, because the the perception, especially, I think there's a there's a, if you've read Peter Thompson's book, The Wars of Afghanistan, uh, one of the issues that's frequently, yeah, uh, I have a lot of disagreements with the book, but one of the issues that's frequently mentioned are the dichotomies between Af- uh, Pakistan's civilian and military leadership. Mm. So, mm. given that PTI is seen as being closer. Uh, relatively to the military than other parties. Uh, And the fact that General Bajwa is visiting Kabul, what does Mm. this tell us about Pakistan's internal uh, dynamic with regard to its policy in Afghanistan? Are Mm. civilian and military both 100% on board? Mm -hmm. Uh, Unfortunately, this is not just in the case of Afghanistan, but many of our foreign policy issues, there has been a major tussle, you're all aware of it, between the military and the civilian leadership. And it did let you know lead to the removal of Nawaz Sharif. It's in front of you. But yes, you've said it rightly. Yeah, PTI. Yes, they are considered as you know hand in glove, and they're they're very much on the same uh, you know uh, wavelength when it comes to our policies towards Afghanistan as well. Apart from the fact that when uh, just on a lighter side, when Imran Khan did you know say that he was going to give citizenship to all the Afghan refugees in Pakistan. That didn't go too well with the military. But apart from that, yes, they're on the same wavelength. And and I think, again, believe me, if the civilian leadership wanted closer ties with with Afghanistan, if the military was not on board, it could not happen because the military is, uh, you know, more stronger or powerful when it comes to our policies internally as well as externally. But again, this is why it is difficult. And I understand the history of mistrust is there. And even when I speak to my Afghan, you know, counterparts or friends, they do always, they view the military with immense suspicion. And, and you know, um, I do understand that and it's difficult to convince them. But I am telling you that there is a visible change uh, in the perceptions that the military has vis-a-vis Afghanistan. And I think the a lot of this has to do also with China's role in Afghanistan and this whole CPEC that's come into the region. Because at the end of the day, you know, you need to have a stable Afghanistan, not just for politics, but for economics as well. And Pakistan needs, econ- you know, our economy to grow. It needs infrastructure. It needs to be connected to Central Asia and, of course, you know, further onwards. So I think it's a whole... It's a whole spectrum of things that has led to this. And also, I think there's a realization, not just within Pakistan, but I think also within other regional countries, particularly Russia, the Central Asians, that, you know, for far too long, they have, you know, invested or depended on the Western world to come and bail them out when there's a problem in the region. And I think you've seen this now in the Moscow talks and how, you know, Russia has really reasserted itself and it has taken regional countries on board, including Pakistan. And a lot of them... These regional countries, I feel they have now a consolidated policy towards Afghanistan, which, by the way, does include the recognition and the role of the Taliban in the future polity of Afghanistan. So it's not just Pakistan who views this. And I think that's also helped, um, you know, um, you know, further this this policy that we have in our country. Um, So, I mean, I'm 
uh, I'm going to, on that note, so you said, for example, in the article before the peace agreement, saying mm-hmm. that what the Taliban cannot continue to carry on killing Afghans because mm. it undermines the legitimacy of um, the claim that they're freeing their land from uh, yeah. foreign occupation. But, yeah. I mean, it's funny because, you know, since the breakdown or the stalling oh. of this peace process, uh, both sides have started to kill each other. But okay. apparently, as of yet, it hasn't really uh, le- lowered the Taliban's legitimacy, even though it's Afghans that are yeah. dying in this. So, you know, yeah. because the peace process has stalled, if, you know, God forbid, it completely collapses and, you know, the, the spoilers that Shah Mahmoud Qureshi was referring to, uh, mm. right now we're seeing it with regard to the prisoner exchange. If, mm. God forbid, um, you know, this war, whatever breaks out in Afghanistan, a, a, a civil war, um, what, how would Pakistan, together with the other countries in the region, respond to this? What is their policy? Because mm. I'm sure there is a contingency plan because it's a very real possibility. Mm. Well, well, I hope to God that there is a contingency plan because we've never had them in the past. But I think <laughs> we haven't, believe me. So, and I don't think we have one now. But, but I think regional countries, no, I think, I, I don't think uh, the regional countries at least will let this happen. And here again, uh, you know, I think it is very important. You see, it's the Americans. Uh, I mentioned, because you, you're mentioning my article, well, you know, Secretary Pompeo, praises the Afghan Taliban and says that they've kept their, you know, uh, part of the bargain. And he's basically talking about the fact that, he, that, that the Taliban are not killing our American soldiers. That's what he means. But, but what about Afghan civilians? And I think here, or Afghan forces for that matter, and here, that is why it is pivotal, it is paramount that the Americans put pressure on the Taliban that they have to show a visible reduction in, in their violence. And I understand the Taliban are doing this because they want to have more influence when it comes to negotiations. But I think this is something that, and, and this is the mistake that was made when the peace, when sorry, the agreement was signed between the Americans and, and the Taliban. More pressure should have been put on this side. And I think then the Afghan government should also put pressure on the Americans. You know that we're not a part of this deal unless until the Taliban reduce their violence. I mean, uh, to be fair, to be fair, I yeah. would say I would. I mean, I, I, mm-hmm. it could be argued that the Americans should be putting pressure on Kabul to, mm-hmm. you know, speed up the, the peace, prisoner release. Yeah, yeah to, to speed mm-hmm. up the prisoner release. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, I think uh, you know, I think with regard to the spoilers that Shah Mahmud Qureshi was referring mm-hmm. to, I think he was referring specifically to Kabul. Uh, he, he and and here, I, I mean, I don't think. The Afghans listening here will appreciate what I have to say. But I think one factor that is often overlooked, and I've mentioned this time and again when I write on on the peace process, is that, look, you know, external elements can only do so much. And there are external spoilers. There is no doubt about it. But at the end of the day, what is the major issue that has been stalling the peace Again, I mentioned peace, the agreement or the implementation of the agreement. It the has withdrawal been, agreement. <laughs> the withdrawal agreement, if it ever takes place, is that, that President Ghani, unnecessarily, he created delays in the release of prisoners. And before, when even he was in power, him and, you know, Dr. Abdullah Abdullah, they would never see eye to eye and they could never come up with a consolidated list to take part in the intra-Afghan talks. And that is why I feel that there are many people within Ghani's government now and before that not only oppose the Taliban, but let alone do they want to share power with them. And Amrullah Saleh is one major example. And, you know, unfortunately, nothing 
I mean, positive comes out of that man's mouth. (laughs) I've had terrible interactions with him. uh, And and of all the places, I've met him in India. And, and, you know, it's been awesome. How has that gone? Well, I mean, at the Raisina dialogue, he was there and, you know, I approached him, started speaking to him in Pushto. And, and the first thing, unfortunately, is always that I'm an ISI agent, which is ridiculous because I love the way they say ISI. You know, it, it's, yeah. it's, it's that accent of this, which is ridiculous because, you know, if you say anything that they don't like, they automatically stamp you as an ISI agent. Uh, you should have, I think anyway. you should have responded asking him why an ISI agent was in India. But I know, and, and that too, the Raisina dialogue, which is, you know, by the uh, foreign ministry. But, but you know, uh, I feel that <laughs> it's just, uh, but, but more importantly, uh, on a serious note, I think, you know, for a country that has been going through so much war, uh, factors like national reintegration, social healing, these are so important. And I think they've been so overlooked. And, and I, uh, I'm i sure you've all read Hila Najibullah's uh, book. It's basically her thesis. It's, it's, it's a repetition continuously as a thesis is. It's her master's thesis. But she focuses on this and she focuses on her father's uh, so-called, you know, peace initiative, which obviously didn't even kick off. It failed. But social healing and national and social reintegration are so important. I mean, Afghanistan is divided on so many fronts. And the fact that the peace, pro- the intra-Afghan talks have not been able to take place just shows you that at the end of the day, if the talks do take place, the, you know, the different political factions and the Afghan Taliban will have to sit together and talk out their differences. And they were able to do this, by the way, in the Moscow talks, uh, how the different political factions, they agreed on that interim political setup. The only I person mean- that didn't agree was Ghani. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, I, I guess we could say that those political factions uh, in Af- I, I think, you know, uh, you speak to many Afghans and they'll say mm-hmm. that those very political factions are the problem because, yeah. uh, you know, you, you know, the guys sitting opposite the Taliban in Moscow uh, were the guys that were, you know, very much on board with toppling and overthrowing the Taliban with American money, but uh, yeah. with American support, sorry. But yeah. now that they're yeah. estranged from Ashraf Ghani, uh, yeah. they want to sort of uh, change sides. So I think po- political opportunism uh, but that's is, what is, politics is about, right, at the end of the day. I mean, look, look at what's happened to Dostam. The fact is that you need, to, you know, they have to come together. Otherwise, this is going to go on forever and ever. And I think there is a, the fact that the Taliban have entered into disagreement. They also, there is war fatigue there. And I think they also realize that, you know, I mean, this is going to be the 19th year. Oh, sure. So, I mean, we mentioned uh, the appointment, so mm-hmm. Mohammed Sadiq as the special representative, and you said that there are numerous issues that Afghanistan and Pakistan need to chalk out with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, recently, we've seen the shelling in mm-hmm. Qunar from, I think, Baja, what is what borders Qunar? Yes, yes. Yeah. 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 What's, what, what, what's the, all of this about? Honestly, uh, I'm surprised that statements haven't come out so far from our, uh, you know, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. We haven't given an official statement, okay. uh, which is quite interesting because normally we do. I've heard, you know, Hamid Karzai has also condemned it. So have other Afghans, but nothing has come out from our side as of yet. So one isn't sure right now. But I think the fact is that the border remains one of the most contentious issues between both these countries. And why again, is it? Why yeah. is it in Kunar specifically? Because, for example, we don't hear about this stuff going happening in, I don't know, in Boldak or, you know. No, no, it's happened before. It, it is happened. So this happened extent? Before. 
of course, in 2014, uh, I remember oh. 2016, then you had attacks in Chitral. So this has been happening. The fact okay. is that everything has slowed down. And, okay. you know, there were hardly any border skirmishes on both sides for the past, I think, one and a half years. Uh-huh. But since Ambassador, now, you know, I don't want to get into this whole conspiracy theory thing, but, you know, a lot of people, no, to be Please do, please, heart, please heart, do. Heart, this, heart, is, heart. this is a safe space. This is a safe space. <laughs> no, no, I, I don't have issues on that. I want to be taken seriously. Unfortunately, <laughs> in our part of the world, South Asia and then particularly Pakistan, you know, we're very good with, you know, conspiracy theories. So I think I'll have to bring it into the conversation. But they're saying that because so much positive developments have been happening across the border within a span of literally two, three weeks, you know, a border that was continuously closed and now you have it open, you've got two-way traffic, now you've got the whole Waga issue going on as well with, you know, the Afghan trade. So there are elements on both sides. That, that That's all I can say that obviously do not welcome positive developments. Now, again, there is this blame game going on. And I'm talking about the past because so far we haven't given an official statement as to, you know, uh, the reason behind these attacks. And of course, there have been deaths on apparently the Afghan side. Uh, but again, all I can say is that there has to be border management. There has to be a clear distinction between what belongs to Afghanistan and what belongs to Pakistan. This is contentious. And I've been there and I've seen it. And, you know, being from the border region, you know that, you know, you're half in Afghanistan, you're in, half in Pakistan. Uh, and even over an inch of land, there are issues uh, that both these militaries get into. So all I can say is that, you know, there has to be, uh, initially, if you remember when NATO was in Afghanistan, there was a trilateral framework between Pakistan, Afghanistan and NATO. And it worked. It was quite successful. Believe me, you know, they, they used to meet regularly and they used to have interactions. And even if incidents just did take place, because I remember one incident took place in Chaman where I think the Afghans claimed that it was a, a village that was inside their side of the border, but it wasn't. And then I think a, I think a consensus team was, was apparently targeted. But I'm just saying that there are ways in which this issue can be resolved, sorry, resolved, or rather it can be managed. And I can't really say much more about what's happened because honestly, we don't have an official uh, view on it as of yet. I mean, I mean, you mentioned that uh, in Pakistan, conspiracy theories are mm. an industry, but I think in Afghanistan, we probably rival you in how <laughs> how, how good we are in that. Um, but, <laughs> and so we're, we're speaking about the numerous issues that Afghanistan and Pakistan have. So we've discussed mm. the Durand line, we, mm. and mm. which obviously ties into sort of the cross-border shelling, uh, uh, security. And another thing I'd like to say here, this is an issue that, you know, I have with my Afghan counterparts a lot. And, you know, they always say to me that, come on, you're a Pashtun. Why are you talking about closed borders? You know, we're talking about the Punjabis. Let's, let's be very honest. This is the view. Mm-hmm. Right. But, but, you know, at the end of the day, whether we like it or not, look at India and Pakistan, we are defined by borders. And the whole point is that it should be a regulated movement. And, and here I just feel at times that the position that Kabul has is slightly contradictory because, look, on the one hand, oh, I mean, time and again, Pakistan has always been blamed that, you know, all the militants come from your side of the border and they create havoc in Afghanistan. So when then Pakistan does try to initiate... Uh, 
border certain control. Yeah. Border control or whether, I mean, I'm not, because I don't believe fencing is going to make a difference. I don't believe if you create further border posts, only border management will help. And it will only work if you have compliance from the Afghan side. But my point is that when Pakistan does take initiatives on its side of the border, then you have the Afghans that complain and they say, well, you're dividing families and, you know, you're dividing the Pashtuns. And so, you know, you can't have, this is a contradictory stance. And, and here it I is. Can, it is. Yeah. There's, a, there's another similar one to it whereby... Um, okay. There's another similar one whereby the guy, the people on the other side, immediately across the Durand line, uh, they are our family, our tribesmen, cousins, brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, they are ethnically Afghan, uh, and I, I yes. agree with all of that. I agree with all of that. But then, if Mohsen Dawar crosses the border and yeah. is endorsing the Kabul government, he's an ethnic Afghan who, you know, he's our family. Whereas, if his cousin comes and supports the Taliban, yeah. then he's a radical yeah. Punjabi ISI terrorist. So, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, you yeah. can't have it both ways. And yeah. We're, yeah. We're, speaking, we're speaking about the border. I've been, the thing is, is that it's very difficult. In a, a lot of these places are really remote. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's very difficult to reach these places and actually to get accurate information. And you know, right. when I remember when the skirmishes happened at Chaman, I would think it was Chaman or Buldak. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, both sides were claiming victory. Okay? Yeah. But I've been hearing for years that you know Pakistani forces came four kilometers deep into Afghanistan and set up a base and yeah. did this, did that. And yeah. then yeah. at one stage, I was like, if this was really true, they would have reached Kabul by now because it's been going on for for, for literal years. But um, I, so we've spoken about security, we've spoken about um, security, the Durand line, uh, yeah. trade. Imran Khan has been really big on talking about an open border. And yeah. one of his uh, speeches at sort of these security or economic conferences was that, you know, this was an open border. It doesn't really exist. It's a man-made yeah. British yeah. line, which is yeah. true, of course. But yeah. he's been pretty clear about sort of wanting an open trade zone between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Yeah. 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 How serious is he about that? How much of that is just rhetoric? How, you know, how realistic is that? No, it's realistic. It's been, we've always had an open border for centuries, you know. Oh, I mean, sure. before, you know, Pakistan was established and it was a very workable one. And do remember, most of the trade that takes place between us, the volume is through the illegal trade that takes place. And it doesn't take place through the illegal borders or the crossing points. So, we have <laughs> some, so yes, he's very serious about it. And I think anybody would be, but I think the, it has to be secure. And I think, again, trade can, look, I'll give you an example. I used to easily cross into, you know, to Jalal, you know, I used to go to Trocham and Jalalabad. Nobody would even check or ask for any documents. So, and I, by the way, have a tribal domicile because I'm from the women's agency. Nobody would even ask. So even for a person like me, it is an issue now because I have to have a valid visa, documents and vice versa. But if we make all those issues easier, and we facilitate movement. What is wrong with having a closed border in that sense? I mean, you know, instead of having an open border. And regarding trade, yes, it's very important and we're very serious about it. And I think, uh, again, I'll bring China in because China, through the OB, uh, through the OBOR, you know, uh, entire thing that it has, the One Belt, One Road Initiative, where CPEC is one aspect, but they have, through the China, Pakistan, Afghanistan trilateral, they've set up cold storages as well. They've set up uh, one cold storage on our side of the border. They're setting one up in Chaman, and they're going to set, you know, two across the border to facilitate trade. And yeah. there are a lot of trade 
facets within the obor which come in the trilateral between these three countries so pakistan is very serious but unfortunately because we've had this cross border movement of militants and again i i will confess it's because we've been facing the repercussions that we feel the border now needs to be more secure uh, it's sad but yes you know when Afghanistan i'm really i'm really stuck, glad i'm really glad that this conversation we're having is going to irritate people on both sides almost equally yeah well <laughs> You guys are sitting abroad. I don't think anything's going to happen to you. No, no, no. I don't think so either. But <laughs> no, no, I mean, I'm just kidding. Yeah. I mean, there's also the issue of water. Now, I don't actually know yes. much. I don't actually know. I'll confess now. I don't actually know much about water. I just know that there's the Kabul River yeah. uh, in Kunar and in other places. Sort of, this is a contentious issue, and yeah, you yeah. hear a lot on Afghan. Uh, aggressive afghan mm. twitter accounts that you know we should build dams and cut the water supply and what how much of an issue is water look uh, uh, we are a lower riparian so basically it's interesting and i i had written somewhat about this but it was a brief that i had sent you know internally because this is something that both these because we've been engulfed in so many other issues between one another uh, and because unfortunately there's been no stability in afghanistan that this issue hasn't really come up and your and government it's the most important or, arguably it is exactly but successive governments in kabul unfortunately have been so entangled in the war that this is not an issue that's come up but it will come up for sure when there's some sort of stability in afghanistan so we're a lower riparian and the water basically goes from the chatral river and it goes you know into kunar and then again it comes back to pakistan so okay. i think under certain agreements and again I, i you know i don't want to misquote but as a lower riparian we have the right to receive that water Sorry, and no can, I, can i can i just <laughs> ask what a lower riparian is okay you're now being t- you're uh, it's basically so you're the 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 state or the region that is below and the water comes from top to bottom so okay. you're the lower riparian they're the upper riparian because the water okay. goes from Ch- chitral to kunar and uh-huh. then it comes to us and okay. and you can google this i i've tried to explain it to you in you know layman's terms but uh-huh. uh, so um Yeah, thank you for that. There. Thank you. Thank you for explaining it. Be, be. So it goes from Chitral to, to Kunar and then flows back. And then flows back and basically Peshawar and Noshera and adjacent areas are dependent on that water. And, okay. you know, there will have to be some sort of an agreement. And I remember, uh, because I think, was it the Samla or the Salma Dam or something, the Indians are also building certain dams over there. So this has been controversial and it has come up. Uh, in Pakistan but again i think what this issue if i'm not mistaken has been put forward in the afghanistan pakistan action plan for peace and solidarity as one aspect to discuss between both the countries but neither side uh, has really moved on and it's interesting because the americans uh, through this program called lead did uh, get experts from pakistan and afghanistan to go to dubai and to try and you know discuss the issues uh, but i don't think much has come out of it to be to be honest Uh, because i feel that it's not a priority right now between both the countries but it is something as you mentioned water you know wars are going to be fought they are being fought on water and this is something that is very critical to the relationship earlier on i mentioned sort of the parallels between 1990s and right now mm-hmm. and there's the elephant in the room which is pashtun nationalism Uh, mm. specifically in Pakistan and yeah. it was sort of relevant in the 80s and the early 90s with uh Hila Najibullah's father Dr. Najib uh you know the, the, the allied with these sorts of people in Pakistan and right now we have PTM 
mm. which is notorious or heroic, depending on your p- political persuasion. And it's been officially condemned, sorry, officially endorsed by Kabul, by Ashraf Ghani. Yeah. Uh, so, how, you know, how, how much of a factor is this uh, with regard to Pakistan? Because... To be honest with you, Pashtun nationalism, uh, Pashtun nationalist movements had lost a lot of credibility in Pakistan, especially in the aftermath of uh, 9-11 and the invasion of Afghanistan. Oh. And now, sort of, once again, as a byproduct of security issues, it's sort of risen up in a new form. How does this, does this affect any sort of policy making toward Afghanistan? Mm-hmm. Look, it is a major irritant when you have you know, your parliament, if they wear the hat, or you have, you know, Tweets coming from whether it's President Ghani or Amrullah Saleh or anybody else, you know. Uh, but I think here Pakistan has to be a little mature about it because, it, you know, again, it's that tit for tat. If Pakistan can um, give statements regarding the Afghan Taliban, then I think, you know, we should be mature enough to hear the Afghans do that as well. Okay? To be very honest with you. But yes, it is, a, it, it is an irritant that comes up. But I think, you know, for, I'll say this much. Um, for the PTM, I think at the end of the day, they're Pakistanis, they're Pashtuns, and I think the only way to solve any solution is through dialogue. You know, one of them is a member of our parliament. And to call them, you know, um, blame them or call them, uh, the word is not, traitors or whatnot, I think that that's, that's not right. You have to engage with them. And, you know, to be very honest, the people in Fatah have suffered considerably. And, you know, they still have, you know, they have. And, you know, they, I think of all the people in Pakistan, I think they've been the most patient, despite the fact that they've suffered for so long. They have genuine, genuine, um, you know, concerns. They've got genuine grievances against the state. And I think the state has to engage with them. And you see, here's the problem. When the state does not engage with them and when the state, you know, calls them traitors or whatever, or they're being sponsored by foreign elements, it just makes it easier for other countries, including, you know, the Afghans to support the cause. And it just creates more problems. And we all know that President Ghani... It becomes honestly, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. And, the, and President Ghani, to be very honest, couldn't give two hoots about the PTM, but he uses it as a political card to put pressure on Pakistan. It's a tit-for-tat policy. And, you know, it's interesting. Where, when I see, you know, they're meant to be leaders and stake, you know, major stakeholders in the region, and they're meant to be, you know, above these things. So I think, uh, and I think it just derails any positive developments that take place between Pakistan and Afghanistan. One step forward and then, you know, that, you know, one step forward and two steps back. It's just that. And I think, you know, there has to be more political maturity here. I don't know. know, Sorry, I don't know if you've heard the... Jawed Sharif song called Ya Kadam Pesh, Ya Kadam Pass, which means. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. that's basically what you're Stop referring to. Yeah. Yeah. Very well. Yeah. No, I think I think yeah. one of the I, I'm glad you mentioned Amrullah Saleh earlier uh, mm-hmm. because in Director S, what Steve Cole says is that when Karzai wanted to make overtures towards the Taliban, he would obviously say things like, you know, these are my cousins, these are my family members. Obviously, because Karzai is from a specific part of Kandahar, Mullah right. uh, yeah. for example, is from the same tribe as Hamid Karzai. Yeah. yeah. But but Amrullah Saleh in those days was very opposed 
to any sort of reconciliation or rapprochement with the Taliban because mm. he said this is going to reinstitute what he saw as Pashtun dominance in Afghanistan. Right. Now, we fast forward uh, about 10 or so years and oh. Amrullah Saleh, who is a Farsi one, is now a diehard uh, Pashtun nationalist yeah. uh, who wears the hats or whatever. So, uh, he almost converted to Pashtun, and not just a Pashtun, <laughs> but to a, <laughs> to a Pashtun nationalist. Yeah, how but, easily narratives change, you know. I know, it, it, I know. It's so, I know. He's, they're so he's, fluid. He's, he's more keen on the hats than even Ashraf Ghani is. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think I think President Ghani, honestly, I feel that having... Uh, this was another issue. Sorry, you've mentioned it, so I, I will point it out. When... You know, Amrullah Saleh, when he took him on board as his vice president, even before. And I think this was an issue uh, even with, with Islamabad. Because, you see, uh, you know, you have other people like Hamdullah Mohib, who's a Pashtun, but, you know, he's been critical of Pakistan. And that's understandable. Uh, but Amrullah Saleh just, you know, he just spouts venom. It's, it's nothing positive comes out of that man's mouth. And I think it's very difficult. And again, even for the Taliban, even now, if you see his interviews, you know, he does not accept the th- I mean, the fact that the Americans have signed an agreement, Kabul will sooner or later speak to the Taliban. And then you've got this one person within the administration who's vehemently opposed to the Taliban, as well as any overtures between Pakistan and Afghanistan. And I think he's a key irritant. You know, we talk about spoilers, and um, he's a key irritant. Yeah, I'm, I mean, Ashraf, one, you could say many things about Ashraf Ghani, but one thing mm. he is not good at is picking his vice presidents. Well, uh, I think he first, did it more for other reasons. Uh, but yeah. first, it, first it was Dostum. Dostum, yeah, well. <laughs> his choice of yeah. vice presidents isn't the greatest, but right, you, you right. spoke earlier, mm-hmm. I think this is the final, I think this is the final point I have, because quite a few points, but Afghanistan and Pakistan are like this, so you know, conjoined twins, so there are a lot of issues. We're speaking about refugees, displaced people, mm-hmm. IDPs. Now, mm-hmm. a lot of people obviously know that there are a couple of million Afghan refugees in Pakistan, uh, mm-hmm. but also, there are people displaced from Fatah living in places like Khost and Paktia, uh, specifically mm-hmm. from Waziristan, a lot of Wazirs, a lot of Masuds. Uh, you know, their repatriation has sort of stalled as well. And Mm -hmm. I think my suspicion is is that my my instinct is that they don't want to be profiled, uh, security profiled when they go back to Pakistan. They could face Mm -hmm. a lot of issues because Fatah is still recovering. Um, Mm -hmm. What are are some of the meaningful steps that could be taken by both Kabul and Islamabad to sort of help facilitate a repatriation or for these people to move between the two countries easily? Because a lot of people in Afghanistan, like we said, need that movement a lot people in Pakistan right. need easing of movement. Right. Well, how can sort of a better uh, you know, future with regard to movement, to what policies can be enacted? Mm-hmm. Uh, look, the, the, I think this refugee issue is such an important issue and I think it could be used as a common ground between Pakistan and Afghanistan. And while, you know, let's celebrate the fact that, you know, when we're living in this world where you've seen in Europe the way they have become so anti, you know, and they consider anybody else that comes as the other. I think this has to be appreciated that, you know, at one point we hosted 5 million refugees. And this is no way, in, in, you know, trying to rub it in the Afghan spaces. Not at all. We did this for our own, you know, reasons. We gained from it. We benefited from it. And also because the people that moved across the border have always been moving to and fro. And they have never been considered as the other until very recently. And this has been politics. And I'll come to that. Um, 
So we just had, I think it was in January, where the United Nations had this major event in Pakistan, where it celebrated about 40 years of diversity, which was a salute to, you know, the refugees that have been living here, and the positive contribution that the Afghans have contributed in Pakistan. Now, I know time and again, you know, you'll always hear from Pakistan that, well, we hosted them, and, you know, they are worth this. No, the Afghan refugees that lived here contributed. You know, the day we changed our policy and we said that the refugees need to go back, and I'm talking about post-2015-16. Was that when the shrine in Karachi was attacked? Yes, yes, yes. And and here I want to, so I'll come to that. Our carpet industry has fully been, you know, run by the Afghan refugees, our gemstone industry. And once the refugees were then being pushed out, our carpet industry went down. And let me hear, you know, for both sides, this whole concept of the refugees are responsible for the terrorism in Pakistan is not true. Those that took part in the APS attack might have come from Afghanistan, but they were certainly not Afghan refugees living in our camps. And I'll give you another example. Um, I wrote this paper on the Afghan refugees, which we circulated uh, amongst different sections in our uh, government. Um, This notion was that they're responsible again for terrorism. I think Directorate of Security in KP, Heber Pukhtunkwa, gave these figures and they were published that out of, you know, I think it was 100%, I think only 0.1% of Afghans were involved in petty crime. You know, unfortunately, politics and this, you know, the hostile relationship between Pakistan and Afghanistan has really played a role in, in, you know, putting pressure on the refugees. And this is very sad and unfortunate because a country that has openly welcomed Afghan refugees and treated them just like any other. You know it. I mean, most of the Afghan leadership lived in Pakistan. All my Afghan friends... Uh, went to the same schools as any Pakistani would, the same health care. There was no distinction. You wouldn't need to show papers when you rented a house. You know, you could open, there was, there was ample opportunities. And the fact that five decades of hospitality was just, you know, washed down in one go when we just changed our policy and said, right, the Afghan refugees need to go back. This was a grave mistake. And I think the PTI government has realized this, that you cannot use the refugees as, as you know, you know, uh, a card to put pressure on Kabul. And then you do remember, President Ghani, sorry, came back and said, you know what, you want to send them back, send them back. And then he initiated Pulwatan, Gulwatan, which unfortunately has been a disaster because those refugees that do go back have nothing to go back for. There's nothing there, the land, and I've seen it, the land that has been, you know, donated or, or set, you know, set aside for the refugees, it's barren. Either people have taken it over or there's nothing happening because of corruption, which unfortunately is so, you know, systematic in, in this part of the world. So for now, and one more point, we keep on saying we have around 1.4 to 1.5 registered refugees, and then we have 1.4 to 1.6 million unregistered. Here's the question, Mark. You do not, Pakistan does not know how many unregistered we have because they came from 1979 and they continue to come. We did not register them until 2005. And so many of them have married. They're in all parts. They're in rural sins, urban sins. They're in Punjab. They're in Chatral. They're even in Azad Kashmir. How do you, and a lot of them did get, because again, we have corruption in Pakistan, they got ID cards, Pakistani ID cards. So let's not talk about the unregistered refugees because that's that's just opening up a Pandora's box. For the registered refugees, there are many students. I have many people who intern with me at the institute and, you know, students who work here and study here. 
they've been given POR cards and, you know, they're just consistently renewed. So they are legal and they can stay here. The process is a bit cumbersome. I, I you know, I, I won't deny that. But those living here, I think now the process has been streamlined. And majority of them now can travel to and fro. But again, remember, anything happens between Islamabad and Kabul, it's the people, it's the citizens that suffer. Because then either the embassy is closed or the embassy isn't issuing visas. Uh, and you know how it is. So, sorry, I, I, I think I've taken too long. No, 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 it's okay. I like to talk, I'm sorry. Yeah, so basically what they need to <laughs> we do... We share that in common. <laughs> right, okay. So what they need to do is I think now uh, with COVID, I don't think repatriation is taking place anyway. Unless and until there is no stability in Afghanistan, it is a sham. You know, we, we say that the refugees go back. Yeah, they go back. The UNHCR, I think, doubles the amount. It could even be, a, you know, $800 per person. They go across the border, then they come back. And unless and until you do not have some sort of stability in Afghanistan, refugees are going to be here. And I think the ones that are here, I think we should facilitate them. And this is the yeah, I think I think one of one of the tragic things is that we often take for granted, like we live in the globalized world where the EU and whatever exists, and there's freedom of movement, and, and mm. you know, in our part of the world, these are all just. Uh, Europeans, they're Westerners or whatever, but, but actually, I mean, if we look at, for example, France and Germany, uh, generally Protestant Germans, mm. generally Catholic French, who fought wars over centuries, okay, mm. can now live, trade uh, in each other's countries with no problem, with no hindrance, mm. whereas on both sides of the Durand line, We've mentioned cousins, tribal members, families, whatever, mm, are mm. now bickering with each other. Uh, and, you know, this hard border is now starting to materialize in people's heads. Well, mm. the thing is, is that this is a really bad time to start that. Okay, because yeah. we have the example of the Europeans to look at because the Europeans didn't arrive here, uh, you know, just by magic. They yeah, arrived yeah. here because they realized this is a really toxic, dangerous path that yeah. doesn't actually bear any fruit. So yeah. for our people on both sides of the Durant uh, yeah. to look at that as the ideal of, ah, <laughs> it's 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 a terrible t uh, time to start this, you know, it, yeah. We, yeah. it's completely yeah. idiotic. There's no other way to put it. No, no, it's true. But I think it has to be gradual. It has to be done in a gradual manner. And and I think, you know, remember when President Rani came in 2014? I mean, it was a completely different atmosphere. You know, he came and, and he did put all his eggs in one basket where he put his, you know, he invested his political future by coming to Islamabad. Another thing that Islamabad did not or could not deliver. And then he made the grave mistake of doing what? Then going straight to our arch-rival India, which just infuriated Islamabad. So the little door that could have been left for reapproachment was completely destroyed. And then you had, you know, uh, the whole um, SARC initiative where, you know, you didn't have the SARC, sorry, summit because then Afghanistan decided not to join as India did. There is, you know, I, I feel that the problems between Pakistan and Afghanistan are not as bad as they are made out to be. There are I a lot agree. of egos involved and I think there are a lot of issues. And I think, again, in Afghanistan, once everyone gets a piece of the pie and everyone gets a share of power, I think things will be very different. And I think, look, I understand that, you know, India is providing the air corridor through and also the Chabahar route and whatnot. But look, Pakistan is by far the cheapest, the easiest route that Afghanistan has. You can't and fight geography. You can't. You can't choose your neighbors, okay? 
so so the only way is for these two countries and i'm not saying they should have a perfect relationship but they have to have a workable relationship and here i am going to pose a question in fact to to the both of you here but, you know we we i understand politics and what not but the fact that we've had around 5 million you know afghans living in pakistan it is really sad because when i meet afghans when i travel abroad and and honestly i with all due respect but i felt that the non pashtuns are more open then the pashtuns are the pashtuns have a lot of like they blame everything on pakistan and and you know they don't see beyond that and it's sad and i often say that you know although they lived within our communities so we did have people to people contact you know often they say we need more people to people contact well for heaven's sake 5 million refugees in pakistan is people to people contact in one way why is it still that that does not come out when when you speak to an afghan regarding pakistan why is it that the politics or it's always considered as pakistan did this pakistan did that why doesn't the positives come out there might be a few positives but you know they should be there no right so i'll answer this question and it's actually quite a it's got a lot of facets to it so the first thing that i would say is that an afghan's perception toward pakistan is first and foremost informed by their political persuasion so if someone is from a communist family background a khalqi or parchami background um they'll all, all just by default be hostile to pakistan because generally they won't accept that the jihad or the insurgency was a legitimate one right. and it was all just a, a proxy of a proxy project of pakistan's secondly um there's also the the lingering sort of the hangover of the british raj in the afghan political imagination mm-hmm. where pakistan um was so is just basically a continuation of the british raj and its sort of predatory aggressive interfering policies in afghanistan okay. and um so so for example one of the things you'll hear was that oh you know the the pakistanis they supported the taliban because the taliban were anti afghan culture they initiated x y and z sort of they're against they're actively against the afghan uh national identity and that's why the pakistanis support them and then the pakistanis supported the americans to de- defeat uh-huh. the taliban and then the pakistanis won and then they supported the taliban against the americans and the whole aim is just for pakistan to continually try to destroy afghanistan right mm-hmm. that that is the that is a narrative and the reason that they do this according to many is because an afghanistan uh, you know a stable afghanistan will go and reclaim uh pashtunkhwa uh mm-hmm. well, obviously we had a stable afghanistan for about 32 years prior mm-hmm. to the soviet invasion and we never reclaimed Pash- uh, uh, pashtunkhwa right. so it yeah. doesn't make sense but uh yeah. and also sanger mentioned communist or russian propaganda um so you know i've mentioned this before my family background is that my father wasn't his based on me so okay. i never received i never received the very strong concentrated anti pakistan juice the other afghans have received it was just sort of yeah you know ziaul haq helped us mm. there are a lot of hypocrites and whatever in the military but you know it is what it is kind of thing that that but then when i read sort of for example peter thompson's book and peter thompson's book is squaring the circle of why the mujahideen were good and the taliban were bad, bad okay? okay and mm. the whole reason 
is ah, it was the Pakistanis. ISI. Evil, yeah, evil ISI. They, yeah, we were we were these really noble good guys. We wanted nothing more but good for Afghanistan. But the ISI, ah, you know, they just did their own thing, and with the most sophisticated intelligence service in the world. We just got blinded for thirty years by accident, and we had no idea. Um, so, so yeah. I yeah. mean, if, the if thing I is, may, is that, yes, if I, I may, one important issue here is that there is a, a certain uh, contradiction, uh, not just on the Americans, and uh, you know, uh, Peter Thompson is, I think, Canadian, right? No, he was the special envoy. Uh, in um, he was like the special envoy to Afghanistan. He met with all of these Mujahideen leaders. Okay. I'm pretty yeah, sure he's but, American. Okay, mm. so so we have this uh, contradictory uh, perspective of the Americans, but also in Afghanistan is that uh, you can't have it both. You can't say Pakistan is a failed nation, it's a weak nation, uh, it's dysfunctional, etc., etc., and then say that Pakistani ISI is supporting the Taliban and it has defeated uh, the strongest alliance of Western nations uh, and it is influencing uh, Afghanistan's internal politics and it is doing this and that. It, it, it doesn't make any sense, but uh, sadly, that's how many people perceive Pakistan as this uh, uh, superpower, uh, more evil and more conniving and more uh, capable than the United States. Even uh, they say, uh, like for instance, sometimes I hear from Afghans they say, uh, uh, ISI is even more evil than Mossad. Uh, wow! <laughs> so well, they, they, technologies, yeah. I wish we did have those technologies. <laughs> I don't mind being labeled evil, but you know, wow, we've got it. I know I've heard this and I find this amazing. Thing. Because the ISI, yeah, you have ones are obsessed with the ISI. I thought the <laughs> Indians were, but yeah, you seem to think that they're, believe me, they get yeah. more credit than they deserve. Yeah, that's uh, that, that, and that's the thing. So, I mean, I think what's what's yeah. really needed is to realize that, and this isn't just for uh, Pashtuns or for Afghans or yeah, for Pakistan. Yeah. It's yeah. that the reality is is that these borders were generally drawn over us. Okay, mm. and uh, so for example, like Amina, you mentioned you're from the Moment Agency. There are moments in Afghanistan. There are moments yeah, yeah. in Pakistan, right? You are, uh, you know, by definition of a patrilineally derived tribal organization, you're closer to an Afghan moment than yes. you are to, let's say, someone in Lahore. I, for example, I'm a Kakar. I'm closer to someone in, let's say, Job than yeah. I am to Sangar, for example. Right. But the reality is, is that these borders were drawn over us. And we, when we start to equate nationality with ethnicity, mm -hmm. we're going to have problems. Yeah. So you can be ethnically Uzbek and a citizen of Afghanistan. You can be ethnically Afghan and a citizen of Pakistan. Because yeah. once we start to equate ethnicity with nationality, yeah. we're going to have what the Europeans had, which mm. was centuries of war millions of people killed, mass yeah. displacements, mass uprooting. And Pakistan's example, uh, experience, sorry, with the partition in India yeah. was pretty ghastly. We need to ask ourselves, do we really want that? Not just on the Durham line, but, you know, in northern parts of Afghanistan yeah, yeah. or whatever. The, these, oh. we, unfortunately, uh, we didn't have much say in how, you know, these the borders were drawn. Yeah. Exactly. So we can continue to fight the never-ending game, which is an inheritance 
from mm. colonialists, or right. we can just say, look, listen, we are where we are. Um, we can still work together to improve mm. the pretty miserable lives of our people. So, yeah. that, you know, that's once I think the biggest, you know, uh, we can acknowledge that our societal political structures are lagging behind, let's say, those of the West. But yeah. we really do not need to transplant their mistakes into us, whereby nationality and ethnicity become the same thing. That would be yeah. a disaster. Yeah. You know, this this reminds me, uh, sorry, I'm interrupting, uh, but something that Apple um, Vajpayee, you know, he said about neighbors, you know, he said, you can't change friends and, you know, certainly not neighbors. And it's the same, you know, in the context of, it doesn't only apply to India-Pakistan, but also the Pakistan relationship. And again, as I say, the only way is to find a workable relationship. But that's the only way you can move forward. And, exactly, and I think we're not going anywhere, and you guys aren't going anywhere. And I, um, I know, <laughs> and I know. Despite my my Afghan friends, they they make they. It, it's interesting. You've reminded me of something. So we had a trilateral between, uh, sorry, a bilateral between Pakistanis and and Afghans. But of course, the Americans they funded. So it was the Holling Center. So it was a nice location. We went to Turkey, Istanbul, and this was just recently last year, and it was you know an amalgamation. We had you know I was representing the Pashtuns and then you know we had some Balochis, we had Punjabis, we had Sindhis and the same you know uh, we had a, a mixed batch from the Afghans. So during the day we'd be you know at each other's throats but you know once you know the sessions would be over so the Pashtuns would go with the Pashtuns, the you know Hazaras would go with the Hazaras you know from yeah, Balochistan yeah. And, and this is how it was and it's interesting they used to say that you know well we don't recognize Pakistan as such because we say that you are on Afghan land, you have Arab religion and you've got Indian culture. And I found that really interesting because that's the first time I had heard, you know, some Afghans do feel that we're like this or that we are not, you know, as old or historic as, as you know, the Afghans are. And, and, you know, that might be true to some extent. But the fact is that, as you said, you know, we have to try and, and live with one another. And I think we've had, we have seen periods of, you know, good relations. And I think one thing that could create some sort of um, stability is if we have economic interdependence amongst each other. Because that's, when money is involved, the, I think it's the example of China, the Europeans. That, or or, that or even the Americans exactly. and or even China or India, you know, despite the fact that they've been at, you know, look at the border issues they've been having, whether it's Doklam more recently, uh, you know, uh, at the LAC. But the fact is that I think, you know, economic interdependence once it's on a legal basis and it's state to state, I'm not talking about the illegal trade. I think it, it could change the ball game altogether. And I hear, I, I, I think that this whole Vaga route, you know, I think Pakistan could gain so much if we do open the route for, our, you know, a two-way traffic. Uh, we're scared. We're scared that the Indian goods will flood the Afghan market. That may be so, but then we could, you know, earn so much through the transit trade. And I think this would also be then, you know, a card that we could use as a pressure tactic on both India and Afghanistan, yet at the same time create, and this would be positive, you yeah. know, kind of economic interdependence and, you know, positive, uh, you know, uh, ways of reassuring or reasserting itself on both the countries. Uh, but I think our, our um, leaders are not thinking in those terms at the moment. No, no certainly not. And yeah. I think the, the, you know, coming back to the final point I want to raise with regard to your question earlier is that mm -hmm. the, the, um, the guys in Kabul 
whenever they get into a position of power, they like to think of themselves as Pashtun nationalists, so you stand mm. for the interests of Pashtuns. Uh, mm. By adopting a belligerent stance to Pakistan, uh, the people they actually harm the most are not, you know, others. It's Pashtuns because that region is inhabited by Pashtuns. So, right. you know, the Soviet war, the Pashtun areas were devastated. The American war, uh, Pashtun areas <clears throat> once yeah. again devastated. So, you know, it's all well and good, the rhetoric about mm. the mm. Duran line, British Raj and all of that. It's, uh, don't get me wrong, it's an mm. excellent speech. It's excellent. You know, one may even fall for it, but in reality, mm. what does it mean? It means that yeah. Pashtuns on both sides uh, get the short end of the stick. stick so exactly. we need to, we need to. There needs to be an acknowledgement of that. That mm. when the two states are not getting along, and when yeah. they're at each other's throats, the borders mm. close down. When the borders yeah. close down, both border sides suffer economically. Yeah. When they yeah. foster proxy groups in each other's territory, local people die. Superpowers get dragged in, and mm. it's a it's a it's a never-ending disaster. Mm. No, I agree. I couldn't have said it better. Yeah. And I think we've discussed everything. So, mm. is there anything that you, you wanted to add or that I missed out? Or it was very enlightening. I really enjoyed listening to you because uh, uh, I must say uh, we are trying to create a uh, dialogue where we can be very balanced. You know, it's it is a challenge. It is very difficult, but we want to create a platform and, uh, where we can have these balanced uh, conversations and where different perspectives can have their uh, say and uh, at the end of the day what we are trying to do is achieve mutual understanding uh, among uh, Afghans and the international community and uh, what you have said uh, I must say, I think that it was very beneficial and that's why we would love to have you in our show more often uh, so that we can uh, learn from your uh, perspective and your analysis. Uh, so uh, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to add your uh, link uh, of your Twitter page, your website, uh, website of uh, uh, Institute for Strategic Studies in our show notes. So anybody who wants to learn more about Amina Khan, her work, uh, you can we'll read uh, the reports that I was talking about. Yes, they will all be mentioned in the show notes of this podcast. And uh, who knows, inshallah, we will have you uh, again as a guest uh, soon. I mean, Amina Khan is doing a PhD on the Afghan Tal Taliban. So once that mm. comes out, you know, it's, it, I'm sure discussing it will be interesting. Well, so, I don't know yes. what you agree, but I feel that the, the group is evolving. It, it's, it's changed. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, so. you know, no. so, yeah, but I think we get, we get different, we get different messages. We get different yeah. impressions of them almost every other day. So by the time that your PhD, inshallah ta'ala, is completed, yeah, I'm sure there's going to be a lot to discuss. Hopefully. Yeah, we look forward to having you as yeah. well in the future, yeah. inshallah. Like Sangar said, you know, what we're trying to do is trying to posit a counter-narrative to what we usually mm. hear because not only is the animosity uh, fueled by people in Islamabad and Kabul, but also mm. from the Kremlin and from the White House. And what we're trying to put forward is something different where people can maybe see things in a different light, understand each other's grievances, concerns, considerations, and their hopes. So, you know, mm. if, if we manage to convince one person to see things in a different light, that will mm. be an achievement. No, no. 
inshallah no again i i'll just end by thanking you uh, you know it's been a great pleasure and, and again i'm i'm glad because usually it takes foreigners to get me involved or engage with afghans so i'm glad that you know it's the afghans themselves that have done it this you know themselves so in that sense i'm i'm very happy and i'll just say this much that look i will advise that pakistan has a lot to answer for and you know um i'm not absolving pakistan of what it has or it hasn't done i think we're all mature enough to know who's done what but you know to pin all the responsibilities on pakistan i think is just counterproductive and it doesn't help either state it's very difficult to overcome you know the history of the past and the mistrust that unfortunately continues to exist but i think it's through dialogues like this where we can talk and we can question each other and you know we don't have to agree um to each other's points but it's through interactions and, and i follow your you know podcast religiously and i think you're doing an amazing job and i i think again it's just through interaction and dialogue I think I think the the final thing I'll say here is that the the tendency to blame on the other uh is also one of it's sort of a it's a hangover from colonialism whereby we are so poor like we have absolutely no say in yeah. what happens to us or what happens to our country it's always the other side and uh you know when afghans do it to pakistan or when pakistanis do it to india or Afghan, or, or even afghanistan like yeah, ptm yeah. being called it, you know it's it's a it's a self fulfilling prophecy it doesn't actually uh, bear any fruit and neither does it hold any water right. so um and like yeah. you know i mentioned earlier i'm glad we're going to irritate people on both sides almost <laughs> equally uh with this yeah. podcast that's what we're here for uh um, right. so yeah uh <laughs> Sangar yeah. well, should we end it there? Yes, on that note, this was our 15th episode of the Afghan Eye podcast. Amina Khan, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. It was a having you. Uh everybody who is listening to this podcast for the first time, we are available on all streaming services and we're on YouTube, so make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thank you very much and assalamu